From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The world's largest science education organization says no to an offer of free copies of the global warming film An Inconvenient Truth. The National Science Teachers Association does not endorse any uh, materials produced by any group outside of NSTA. But the producer of the documentary says that's just a convenient cop-out. This is less about a DVD and more about the fact that school science seems to be up for sale here. An inconvenient controversy over science education. And pigeons, once thought of as heroes on the battlefield, now just, well, pigeons. For 10,000 years, pigeons were considered our very best friends. And just in about the last 50 years, they've just been utterly vilified as vermin by the pest control industry. We drop in on pigeons and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The film, An Inconvenient Truth, is the third largest grossing documentary of all time right behind Fahrenheit 9-11 and March of the Penguins. The movie featuring former Vice President Al Gore warns that we're sitting on a ticking time bomb, that scientists believe we have just 10 years to prevent global warming, planetary disaster. It's our only home. And that is what is at stake. Our ability to live on planet Earth to have a future as a civilization. An Inconvenient Truth is now out on DVD, and for the National Science Teachers Association, it's become an inconvenient controversy. The NSTA is the world's largest professional organization dedicated to promoting excellence in science teaching and learning. Recently, Lori David, executive producer of the film, offered free copies of An Inconvenient Truth to the Science Teachers Association, but it refused her offer. Lori David wrote a scolding op-ed piece in the Washington Post criticizing the group, and she joins me on the line. Hi, Miss David. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you very much. You know, you offered 50,000 free copies of the DVD, An Inconvenient Truth, to the National Science Teachers Association. What were you hoping to accomplish? Well, you know, what I was hoping to accomplish is to get this movie, An Inconvenient Truth, which is, you know, the definitive um, story about how the globe is warming and, and um, that humans are causing it, into school so school kids can, can see the truth about what's happening with this issue. And they said, well, thanks, but no thanks. Well, I was quite shocked, actually. You know, we had a series of email exchanges with NSTA, and uh, they seemed very interested at first, and we went back and forth, and the next thing you know, they said, no, thank you. And I have to tell you, I have been deluged with emails from teachers all over the country. I'm hearing from every single state in the country saying this is outrageous. I mean, they are running 99 to 1 outrage at the fact that the NSTA did not accept these free DVDs. Mm-hmm. And you wrote about this in the uh, in the op-ed column in the Washington Post. Right. It ran the Washington Post, and um, I, I just could not believe the response from teachers. And by the way, from other associations who are you know emailing us saying, well, we'll help distribute this. And uh, people really not understanding, like, why wouldn't NSTA accept this? 
And I think that, you know, I said in the op-ed, there's one reason, I think, and it has to do with the oil industry, that they accept money from ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil has spent millions of dollars over the course of the last decade trying to confuse the public on global warming, and now they're infiltrating our schools. I mean, really, this is less about a DVD and more about the fact that school science seems to be up for sale here. Well, I spoke with uh, Dr. Gerald Wheeler, who's the executive director of the National Science Teachers Association. He says he just saw the film just a few days ago. and uh, Well, I mean, that uh, says something, doesn't it? Well, I mean, <laughs> this guy's the head of the NSTA, and he just saw the film a couple of days ago. It's been out for months. I mean, I don't understand that right there. Well, let's listen to my conversation with Dr. Wheeler about the film and the controversy. I thought it was a compelling story. I mean, I've seen uh, Vice President Gore give this talk a number of times, I think the first time 15 years ago, and he's a, he tells a compelling story. Well, why did you turn it down when they were given an offer to distribute 50,000 free copies of it? Uh, the reason that we turned it down was because of our endorsement policy or non-endorsement policy. The National Science Teachers Association does not endorse any uh, materials produced by any group outside of NSTA. But you have done that in the past. I mean, the, the ConocoPhillips produced a video called The Search for Solutions, a giant oil company. You distributed 20,000 of the videos. Uh, no, uh, actually, we didn't. Uh, we didn't mass distribute those. And the difference between that, Bruce, is that it wasn't ConocoPhillips uh, production. It was the National Science Teachers Association production. ConocoPhillips came to me in 2001 and said they'd like to re- have us reproduce their or, or recreate their uh, classic Search for Solutions. I've identified the research scientists, the science educators, convened an advisory group. I chaired it. Uh, the advisory group chose the content, chose the sites to visit, uh, passed on all the rough cuts, and passed on the final production. So it's an NSTA project. Uh, Phillips, it was just Phillips at the time, but Conical Phillips now paid for the production, but it was entirely an NSTA production. Well, I'm looking at uh, the episode right now, and it raises quite a number of, of um, uncertainties. And one of the lines in this is, is really eye-opening. Uh, it says, quote, some scientists believe that the high level of present-day CO2 will soon be, if not already, on the decrease, end quote. It's, it's suggesting that there's an entirely different body of science there who says, you know, we don't have any problem and it's going to get better. And it was correct in 2001 that some scientists did say that. I mean, it's not a biased uh, production. It is trying to get children to look for evidence and to uh, have discussions, honest discussions within their classroom with their science teachers and to sort of, if you will, unpack the nature of science. Is it still available? Yes, it is. But I could get a copy of this if I wanted to. Because because Uh, when I went to your site, you can't get a copy. But when I go to a site that's linked to ConocoPhillips, uh, I can Right. They, they actually own the, the DVD, and they are the ones that are distributing it, not us. You, you currently receive uh, funding uh, from the Exxon Mobil Corporation, which has a person. That on, is correct. They have a that person that sits on your corporate advisory board. Uh, not a corporate advisory group. It's a group that it just advises me on the logistics of running operations. I'm a physicist, and, and our organization is cl- composed completely of science teachers. So I joined NSTA. When I joined NSTA, I thought that we needed to get a lot smarter about how to run as a business, how to run our IT group, how to worry about e-commerce as the Internet grew. And so I asked about eight industrial leaders to, uh, to sit with me twice a year and, and my senior staff to talk about 
issues, uh, business issues, and uh, and half, not half, but but half, well, almost half of them uh, uh, projects that that we're currently running, and half are not. Some of them haven't given us any money at all, and and some have given us some money for a breakfast at a conference, and some have been major partners like Exxon Mobil in that uh, in that network that we have. Well, one of your critics says, you know, you've got corporate propaganda masquerading as environmental education. That's a serious charge. Sure. It is a serious charge, and we take it very seriously. Um, I think where that's coming from, Bruce, but I, I can't get into the mind of this person, I think where that's coming from is that our conferences, a variety of companies and organizations and foundations rent space, rent exhibit space, uh, we say yes to that because we want science teachers to have the opportunity to go up to these people and to talk to them and, and to decide from themselves what works for their classroom, their students, their community, and their state science standards. Mm-hmm. I don't judge uh, that message. I judge I'm only careful that, in fact, NSTA is not seen as giving that message. We are providing the information. It is the science teacher who is the professional that has to decide if it works for him or her. So if Lori David wanted to sell her video at at your conference, that would be okay? You, You bet. In fact, my letter back to her said... Global warming is so important, NSTA will do this, this, and this, and I'll be glad to outline those for you. So what would you do for her? Well, we suggested a number of things that she rejected. We said that we would put the availability of that site on the front page of our website. Uh, we get about 200, uh, two, excuse me, 2 million page views a month. Uh, and that we would allow teachers, uh, we'd fa- facilitate teachers clicking through to uh, their site to pick up the video. She wasn't interested in that. We said that we would uh, sell her a, a, a membership list. It's a special membership list. It's people, people who have already told us that it's okay to send things to them. It's not all of our members. We would sell her that uh, at a very low price that we would, uh, and, we, and we did, invite uh, Vice President Gore to our upcoming annual convention in uh, St. Louis in uh, the end of March. What happens now? Oh, I don't know, Bruce. I'm not sure what else to do. I, I offered to uh, Ms. David uh, a variety of ways to get this very important subject over. I just would not violate NSDA's policy about uh, endorsement. We had nothing to do with that video. We, uh, I didn't see it before I made my decision. It had nothing to do with my decision. We just do not endorse outside uh, productions. Well, Dr. Wheeler, I want to thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Ms. David, you're the executive producer of the film Inconvenient Truth. Why not take Dr. Wheeler of the NSTA up on one of his offers? Well, first of all, I need to respond just generally from all his comments. As a parent, I'm totally outraged. As as a parent that has kids in schools, as as a citizen, I'm outraged by what he said. And by the way, I never rejected anything. He never offered me anything. He had a phone conversation with me 24 hours after the op-ed ran, in which he said, "Lori, I want to make this right. I didn't um, give this the full attention I should have when it came across my desk. And I'm gonna we're gonna have a conference call in two days after I talked to my board, and we're going to figure out how to handle this. And I never heard from him again, okay? So there was, there was no opportunity for me to reject anything. And we talked about a long list of things that they could possibly do. And one of the suggestions, by the way, was to have the NSTA send out the DVD without an endorsement. How about distribute it with a note saying, consider this for your classrooms. We're not endorsing this. We, just, we think that this, should, this has been given to us. We want to make it available to you, and you decide. And he seemed to think that was a great idea, but, of course, I never heard back from him. So nothing was ever rejected. And, by
by the way, why is ExxonMobil advising the head of the National Science Teachers Association? I mean, I find that outrageous. I mean, they have spent millions of dollars misinforming the public on global warming, causing doubt and confusion. This has been well documented by newspapers and magazines. And here we have the head of NASA taking advice from them. And by the way, another question, why are mailing lists of teachers up for sale? I mean, why are those up for sale? So if I can buy them, then any chemical company can buy them, any coal industry company can buy them. I mean, I find that totally outrageous also. Well, would you buy his mailing list? He's offering it. You know what? Here's the thing. I do not want to send a DVD out on a, you know, as junk mail, because that's what mailing list sales end up being. And how much junk mail on mailing list do you get that ends up right from your mailbox into your garbage can? And these DVDs cost money. I mean, we're providing that we want to provide them to the teachers for free, but I have to find funders to pay for that. So I don't want this thing going out on a general mailing list where it's going to end up in a garbage can. What do you want to happen now, or what are you going to do now? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise money independently, and we are going to make those 50,000 DVDs available to the first 50,000 accredited teachers that want them. And we've received, you know, hundreds of emails. So anyone who's already emailed us and said they would like a DVD for their class, and we will be providing it to them. And I'm hoping by the first of the year that we're going to be able to uh, make an announcement about how we're going to do this and when we're going to do it. Ms. David, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on. Lori David is the executive producer of the documentary film An Inconvenient Truth. Coming up, a revered bird gets no protection, and a reviled bird gets new respect. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Spiders can spin silk stronger than steel, and there are plants that harness the sun's energy better than a solar cell can. These are examples of evolutionary R&D. Over billions of years, nature has evolved, producing extraordinary technical accomplishments. Increasingly, biologists, engineers, even architects are imitating Mother Nature. They call the method biomimicry. Andrea Kissick from member station KQED has our story. Growing up snorkeling off the coral reefs of Australia, Jay Harmon has never strayed far from his childhood. As a boy, he paid close attention to how the waves curled and crashed and the sinewy way the fish swam. It all seemed effortless to Harmon, who now runs an appliance design company in Marin County, California. As he strolls along a beach just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, Harmon is reminded of his earliest inspiration, seaweed and the way it moves with the force of water. You know, you get waves out here that are 40 feet high, massive waves, massive amount of energy, and this kelp doesn't break off. What they're doing in, in order to survive against this onslaught of this massive mountain of water is they change their shape and they start to spiral into the same spirals that the waves do. It's the path of least resistance, and that was a huge discovery for Harmon, who spent more than a dozen years with the Australian Wildlife and Fisheries Department and has studied mechanical engineering. In fact, Harmon's insight led him to the spiral. He's obsessed with the shape. Back in his San Rafael lab, he sees spirals in everything. Nature always follows a particular pathway when it moves. But I'm talking about how liquids flow and how air flows and the fog moves and how blood flows in our veins. 
how a seashell grows or the cochlea of the ear grows. All of these things, without exception, have one path of movement, one geometric path of movement, and it's a spiraling shape. Think of that sucking sound when the last of the water drains out of the sink. Harmon figured out how to copy a spiraling whirlpool to make more energy-efficient, quieter fans, stints, pumps, and turbines. He hopes his tiny propellers will be used to curb the spread of disease in developing countries. Harmon is part of a movement of innovators inspired by nature. And if they were to have a guru, it would be Janine Benyus. In 1997, she coined the term biomimicry in her seminal book about nature and design. Based in Montana, she travels the globe talking about the idea to industry, academics, and anyone who will listen. Around the world right now, there are people in design, engineering, architects, chemists, all who are sort of looking over nature's shoulder and saying, how has life already solved the problems that I'm trying to solve? And they're looking at those strategies and then actually taking the next step and trying to emulate them to solve human problems like droughts in Africa. Engineers are looking at the Namibian beetle. It turns out its wing scales harvest water, even from fog. As the fog rolls in, the beetle lifts its wings, and large droplets of moisture build up and run down its shell into its mouth. A German company has developed a self-cleaning paint based on the water-repellent lotus leaf. And perhaps the best-known example of biomimicry in action is Velcro, which was inspired by those little prickly things that stick to a dog's tail. All of those strategies have to be conducive to life. They're not toxic ones or they're not wasteful, you know, overbuilt ones because natural selection is a really powerful optimizing process. The caution that we have is that if you take biomimicry too far and you consider it as blind copying, then you can actually be led down the wrong path with respect to design. UC Berkeley integrative biology professor Robert Full is studying the locomotion of bugs and reptiles for ways to inspire robotics. It turns out that nature works on a satisficing principle, that is, evolution works on a just-good-enough principle, not an optimizing, perfecting principle. And in many cases, it's very hard to tell which parts of the organisms you should mimic and which parts you shouldn't. It's trial and error and a little bit of luck. Nike, who hired a biologist for advice on design, had to pull its Goat Tech trail shoe modeled after a mountain goat's hoof when people didn't buy them. And that's where Full, who talked with the company, says corporations and manufacturers need to be careful. It may be that some of nature is just not meant to be copied. So here's a gecko, and it's sticking on a wall in okay. one of their cages. In his lab in the Life Sciences Building on the Berkeley campus, Full points to a crested Indonesian gecko glommed on to the side of a small aquarium. You notice that the feet are a bit unusual in the sense that they're not just kind of flat, smooth toes. If you look at them, you'll see that there are sort of ridges there. They're leaf-like structures called lamellae. And on those lamellae, what we discovered is that the geckos have millions of hairs. If you look at the ends of those hairs, they have the worst case of split ends possible. And that's the secret of how they can stick on walls and go anywhere. 
Fool and his colleagues are trying to design a robot modeled after the gecko that can scurry up walls and look for victims in burning buildings. And that seems to be the common thread among most scientists looking to nature for ideas. They are seeking sustainable solutions that will help people and the planet resolve some of today's most pressing problems. Full just started a new center at UC Berkeley dedicated to teaching the next generation of scientists how to take their cues from nature. For Living on Earth, I'm Andrea Kissick. The song of the cerulean warbler was once common in the forest of the eastern United States, but today the voice of the warbler is rare. The population of the songbird has declined more than 80% in just four decades. And conservationists say this is the reason. On this mountaintop in West Virginia, huge machines mine coal. This type of excavation has destroyed more than 800 square miles of southern Appalachian forest, which happens to be the heart of the habitat of the migrating cerulean warbler. As the number of birds has steadily and steeply declined, Conservation organizations have tried to get the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to add the cerulean warbler to the endangered species list. The federal government stalled for six years, so the group sued the Wildlife Service for an answer. Now they've got one, and environmentalists don't like it. The cerulean warbler will not be listed as an endangered species. Greg Butcher is Director of Bird Conservation at the National Audubon Society, and he joins us. Thanks for having me. Did the decision surprise you? No, unfortunately it didn't. This administration has listed the absolute minimum number of species as threatened or endangered as possible. So we were afraid that this would happen. But why is the cerulean warbler so important? Well, the cerulean warbler is important for a variety of reasons. Uh, One, it's a beautiful bird. It is one of God's creations. It is valued in and of its own right. But it also uh, provides an economic importance. It is found in eastern deciduous forests where it eats a variety of insects, and it especially eats leaf-eating insects. And so the leafiness, the shade, the air-cleansing ability of the forest is dramatically better because the Suli warbler is here to, to do its function. Yeah, but unfortunately, its habitat is the same place that's home to the open mining industry in uh, eastern the United States. Yes, uh, the cerulean warbler is in the bullseye for uh, a process known as mountaintop removal mining. Uh, And there's uh, still a tremendous amount of coal found in the Appalachian Mountains uh, in the eastern United States. Uh, And it turns out that cerulean warblers need mountaintops uh, for their preferred habitat. And so a tremendous amount of cerulean warbler habitat is projected to disappear in the future due to this mining practice. But people are going to hear this, and they're going to say, bird, my home being heated in the winter. Bird has to stand for the environment as a whole. And uh, the environment is tremendously important to all of us. If we can't preserve enough habitat for the cerulean warbler to thrive, then it's an indication that we're not preserving the habitat or the air or the water in the way that humans need to survive. Mr. Butcher, I understand that the cerulean warbler has become sort of a poster species, an example of how the Bush administration has been using or not using the Endangered Species Act. 
It's not a complete poster species yet because we haven't been able to pull back the curtain and understand how the decision was made. We know for other endangered species that the process hasn't been followed correctly. And so uh, a bird like the Gunnison sage grouse, we know that there was a recommendation from the field to list that bird and then a reversal uh, by the political appointees in Washington, D.C. not to list the bird. And so in many ways, that's the, the worst example we've seen so far. It does seem very surprising to us that a bird that's declining at more than 3% per year and more than 30% every 10 years uh, doesn't qualify for the endangered species list. Well, if the decline of the warbler has been so dramatic, what reasons do they give for not listing it? Well, basically, they say that it's reasonable to assume that we'll lose 90% of the individuals of the species over the next 100 years, but it's not reasonable to assume that we'll lose them all. So you save 10 out of 100, and that's good enough? That's the reasoning. It's not good enough for me, and I don't think it's good enough for most people who really care about uh, our environment and our bird populations. Well, what are you going to do about it? I don't know for sure yet. Uh, It's one of these things where uh, there's a long ruling of uh, many pages, and we're going to want to look very carefully at the reasoning. The good thing is that uh, good conservation work for the bird will continue. It's a very high priority for a wide number of people. Unfortunately, we won't have the same ability to impact the actions of the mining companies as we would have had if the bird had been listed. So if an animal like the wobbler isn't going to be listed, what hope is there for other animals? Well, the hope is that two years from now there'll be a new administration, and that administration is almost certainly to care more about the Endangered Species and Endangered Species Act than this one does. Have you ever seen a a cerulean warbler? Oh, absolutely. It's a beautiful bird. It's actually a little tough to see because it nests in the canopies of trees, and it sings its heart out, uh, especially during May and June. And so uh, I've been out to uh, Shenandoah National Park in the uh, mountains of Virginia, and you can hear that song of the cerulean warbler, and you have to look up, and uh, you get a thing called warbler neck. Uh, because you have to look straight up into the canopy to try to find the bird. And you can be sure I stuck around until I got a really good look at it. Well, Mr. Butcher, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it a lot. Greg Butcher is Director of Bird Conservation at the National Audubon Society. When I say pigeon, I bet I can guess what you're thinking. Pigeons are dirty, right? Disease-carrying pests, a real public nuisance. Well, you're probably not a person with a passion for pigeons, person like Andrew Blechman, for example. He's written a book about the bird titled Pigeons, the fascinating saga of the world's most revered and reviled bird. And he joins me. Thank you very much, Andrew. Good to be here. It really is a fascinating saga. Who would have thought the pigeon had such an amazing history? Well, certainly not me. Uh, I've tripped into this by accident. And the more I learned about this bird, the more I was amazed. Well, you could say it was a real accident. Yeah, it was, actually. It was, uh, I was at the bodega. I used to live in Manhattan. I was getting a tuna sandwich, and this place made it just the way I liked it. And uh, while I was there, I met a guy named Jose, and uh, he tells me that he races pigeons. And I just, you know, he, he got my attention. <laughs> I didn't think people did that, let alone still did that. And then he told me his pigeons were thoroughbreds. That really caught my attention. I know, like horses. They breed pigeons like they do racehorses. Absolutely, actually. In fact, the very best pigeons, they can bring in a pot of million dollars at an uh, international race. Actually, they're sold at auction for tens of thousands of dollars, and they're studded out for several thousand dollars a go. They're related to doves. Yeah, actually, they are. They're called the rock dove. Uh, in fact, pigeon is just basically French for dove, just like paloma is Spanish for uh, pigeon or dove. 
Do all pigeons home? Yes, all rock doves do. Some do it better than others through practice, such as uh, such as the homing pigeons. I mean, they are thoroughbreds, but they do all do home. They used to be cliff dwellers, and let's say they, they were, think of the cliffs of Dover. They, they would basically nest in the cliffs, and then they would forage inland for food, and they would never abandon the nest, and when they mate, they mate for life, so they would always come back with their food. They basically honed that skill to find their way back. Do we know why they home, how it works? You know, it's funny you should ask. I talked to the very top people in the field, including a gentleman in uh, Cornell who's dedicated his entire life to this. And no one's entirely sure, but there are a lot of theories out there, you know, and they do have an idea how it does. But they actually, they're able to sense the magnetic field around the Earth. They're also able to um, know where they are using the sun and the moon and the stars, basically. And the other thing is they have, ultra, uh, they have ultrasound hearing, so they can gauge where they are. They can hear wind over the Rockies from 2,000 miles away and gauge where they are by that as well. Well, They have extraordinary endurance and speed. Yeah, they they routinely will fly 600-mile races at more than 60 miles an hour. You write about pigeons playing a, a role, an important role, in the Battle of Waterloo. Actually, they paid, I don't want to say a financial role. Uh, Baron Rothschild at the time, he sent a, a courier with a pigeon to the battle so that the minute that Napoleon lost, the message was then flown to England by pigeon, where he got the news a day early. And, of course, he invested uh, accordingly. At the time, don't forget, pigeons were the fastest way to get anything anywhere. They were basically FedEx or Airborne Express. Other than a pigeon, all you had was, was a horse going at about a trot or a gallop. They have an illustrious history. I I didn't realize there were more pigeons honored as heroes in World War I and II than than canines. Yeah. When you look at the pigeon in the park, you wouldn't think, you know, that guy's related to war heroes. But they are. In fact, they're decorated uh, metal war heroes. One million pigeons served in in World War I and World War II and literally saved thousands of soldiers' lives. They would use them and put little bands around their legs with messages. Yeah, they would um, ferry critical messages from one place back to, to headquarters, and they invariably made it back and quickly. Now, think about this, too. The first Olympics in 776 B.C., the uh, news of the results of the winners was actually sent out to all the villages by pigeons. Charles Darwin, you write, didn't get his inspiration for the theory of natural selection from finches, but from pigeons, you know, it's interesting. We always talk about the finches when we think of Darwin, but that was very early on. That's when he first got some inklings of what was going on. But it was actually pigeons that he used. He became a real pigeon fancier, and he would breed them in his backyard. So you have so many people that love pigeons, but they get such a bad rap. You could say they were, and I'm going to make a bad joke, pigeonholed. Yeah, they are pigeonholed, and it, it's a critical issue. This is an absolutely horribly persecuted bird. They put caustic gels on, on perches, which burn through its feet. It's poisoned routinely, electrocuted, and it's actually a, a phenomenal animal. Well, Tom Lair uh, once wrote about poisoning pigeons in the park with cyanide-coated peanuts. Yeah, somewhere it became funny to persecute pigeons, and I'm not sure where that came. I, I was always told that you know to pick on someone smaller than you just wasn't particularly cool. But could it be Woody Allen in uh, Stardust Memories? He he called them, what, rats? (laughs) Rats with wings, wings. yeah. It's believed he invented the phrase, uh, rats with wings. But they're really not. In fact, they're no dirtier than we are. They live off what we drop. What about what they drop? Isn't that, like, really bad for us? No, it's really no different than what we drop. The, The problem is they don't have toilets. And the problem really is that there's too many of them. If we had fewer pigeons, it wouldn't be a bigger problem. But then again, you know, wildlife can be inconvenient. Especially urban wildlife. They're one of the last real vestiges of, of urban wildlife. 
Yeah, that's why I think we really need to appreciate them. I found that when I lived in New York City, they really animate the place. So, Andrew, what is your suggestion and what do we do with pigeons to solve the problem? You know, humane pigeon control really isn't that difficult. It's very simple, really. And they do it all through Germany, Switzerland, and the Benelux countries, you know, Netherlands and Holland. And what you do is you create pigeon coops. They're really just hen houses. And you put them in public areas, and they can be quite beautiful. You can have contests for designing them. And you ask people to feed the birds there. And that's where they will breed. At the end of each week, you just cull the eggs out. You just remove the eggs, and you can reduce the pigeon population by half in, in a matter of a year or two. You know, it's interesting. For 10,000 years, pigeons were considered our very best friends. And just in about the last 50 years, they've just been utterly vilified as vermin by the pest control industry. And it's a very recent, recent thing. And I'm just really hoping that people will take another look at this bird, because it is everywhere we are. Everyone can relate to pigeons. Well, Andrew, you sound like a real philoparasteron. Is that the word? Well, <laughs> is that the word? For that's it? the word for it. That, that would be an admirer of pigeons, and uh, I'd have to say, yeah, that I have become an admirer of pigeons. I, I can't look at a pigeon the same way again, and I don't think after reading the book, anyone else can as well. Um, I've really come to admire these birds. Well, Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Andrew Blackman is author of Pigeons: The Fascinating Saga of the World's Most Revered and Reviled Bird. Just ahead, when an inventor's dream turns into a nightmare, keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Some people revel in their work, while others struggle just to show up each day. Some prosper in their careers, while others end up broken-spirited and bankrupt. IEEE Spectrum's Harry Goldstein met a man who loved his work and invented a way to make a better car, but took a wrong turn on the road to success. It's cold. You've never heard of Corliss Orville Barant. I hadn't either, until someone slapped a ten-page fax down on my desk that Barant, or Cobb as he calls himself, sent me about the flood of hybrid electric cars onto the world market. Cobb claimed to have invented and patented a way of using a sensor inside a cylinder of a car engine to optimize how air and fuel mix during combustion. He claims almost all hybrid cars on the market are using a version of his invention. But Cobb didn't get rich off his patent. Instead, he lost his house, his wife, and his mind. Somehow, through years of homelessness, Cobb and some well-meaning friends have preserved a prototype of his invention. It sits in the trunk of a sky-blue 1965 Corvair in an auto shop in the Minneapolis suburb of Ham Lake. My friend John Zern drove me out there to meet Cobb and see the Corvair. The day was blindingly bright and frigid. Fast traffic now. Look at the weather forecast with Mike Lynn. We are chilling and thrilling. Uh, we've got all kinds of cold air all around CCO land. The Arctic siege continues. The macho cold air directly, live and direct from the North Pole. I explained to John that Cobb's story serves as a warning to all inventors who exchange rights to their patents in return for venture capital to bring those inventions to market. 
cop thought he was on his way to Easy Street when in 2002 he discovered that Honda's intelligent VTEC engine used technology similar to that described in his U.S. patent number 4961406. <music> Issued on October 9, 1990, this patent covers a, quote, method and device for optimizing the air-fuel mixture burn rate of internal combustion engines. So you know Cobb's, did you get Cobb's name? Corliss Orville Barant. Corliss Orville Barant. Apparently a direct descendant of uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Corliss, some very famous uh, steam engine uh, inventor. He made it efficient. He made it efficient. And that's what we want to do today is have an efficient reporting trip. With this patent in hand, Cop thought he could force the world's largest car makers to pay him royalties on an idea he believed they were clearly using. But there was a problem, a big one. Cobb didn't own the patent. Not only that, the company to which Cobb had assigned ownership, Investment Rarities Inc. of Minneapolis, had failed to pay the U.S. Patent Office the maintenance fees due on all 12 of the patents Barant had garnered over the course of a decade. So Cobb's invention slipped into the public domain. Today, anyone can use it for free. By the time I finished telling John the particulars, we had arrived at our destination, Benson's Transmission Center. Wow, there are a lot of trucks around here. I don't see anyone here. It's open here. Hi. Are you here Yes, here to see Cobb. We entered a cramped, wood-paneled office and were greeted by the office manager who fetched Cobb from the garage. Harry? Hey, Cobb. Nice, nice to meet you. you. Pleased oh, to meet you. Long time. How you I'm doing? John, John nice pleased to meet, to meet you. you. Well-groomed, dressed in a black leather vest and black jeans with piercing gray eyes that would occasionally flutter shut as if he were about to fall asleep, Cobb greeted us with a hearty handshake and immediately launched into his story. His dream was to have car engines communicate with satellites that would calibrate the engine to operate at optimum efficiency depending on where you were driving in the U.S. What kind of car is it again? A 1965 Corvair, or I should say half of a 1965 Corvair. So we cut the engine in half and we rotated it 90 degrees and we made a opposed pushrod six-cylinder into an upright three-cylinder overhead cam engine with variable compression, variable cam phasing, and variable valve events that all can be adjusted by radio control because we were trying to advocate that you could reprogram things on the fly from uh, satellites before there were satellites. So we were hitchhiking and we were going to do it off of a radio uh, station. As a noisy printer churned out page after page of invoices, we stood there in the office listening to Cobb, trying to get him to focus on the timeline, when he invented what, and how his whole odyssey began. 
Yeah. And, and, and what year were you? What, what years were you showing this around? Early '80s. Early '80s. Yep, and, had, and you say we? Who who was involved with? Well, you? at that time we had so much money. We had a we had a we had several professional people that would transport the car, and I mean, we were dealing with presidents and companies, and um, it was a high roller venture. I mean. Um, you know, we were eating in these restaurants with Muhammad Ali and all these, you know, it was quite the role. I was there to stay on top of technology. I wasn't there to be worried about hotel rooms, transportation or anything. The company said, you think variable velvet timing from when you get up and you go to bed and everything else is on us, because that's the only way we were going to get to the top. Here is a man who believed his invention could change the world for the better. Cheaper, cleaner cars, a better environment, less dependence on foreign oil. The world was his oyster. He was eating in fine restaurants, talking with top executives at big automakers, and he was turning down multi-million dollar offers to develop engines for the likes of GM, all because his venture capitalist, Investment Rarities, thought it could get more. But when its core business, gold trading, went south in the late 1980s. Investment rarities dropped Cobb and his patents. Cobb recalled the grim day in 1988 when he stood between the local post office and a McDonald's, trying to decide whether to spend the only money he had left on a cheeseburger for his growling stomach or postage for his last remaining patent. And everybody, I mean everybody said, walk away from it, give it up, you've wasted your life over it. I said, no way, this is the control patent. Anybody that ever lands one of these mamas has got easy street for the rest of his life. And that's how, that's how the flat, in the end, the financial, it, 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 it wasn't believable. I couldn't tell you a story that would, that would actually, I, you couldn't put it in words how horrible the financial end of the deal was. And I wrote it through and then basically, Nothing happened for years. The investment rarities got, basically the IRS shut them down. Cobb's eyes fluttered again, and it looked as though he might break into tears at any moment. The nostalgia for what he had and what might have been seemed too much. He'd made a huge mistake somewhere along the line, and he knew just what it was. The dilemma that I got myself in is a dilemma that any engineer in the world can get in. I lost everything I owned. I mean, I yeah. lived in that car. I mean, that was my address. That's how far I went down the tube. And there was no money to pay maintenance <clears throat> fees. So the United States government took away all 12 of my patents. <laughs> Basically, I started having some stress-related health problems. I'm certified crazy. I'm on SSI, totally mentally disabled. I mean, I was declared crazy. It says right on my papers, obsessive compulsive behavior associated with engine patents. It says it right on my papers, right on the deal when they went down and analyzed me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, I mean, I lost everything. I lost my house. I lost all my cars. I lost everything. I was freaking homeless. I lived in that goddamn car for a while. I mean, how many inventors live in their prototypes? I mean, is that ridiculous or what? I mean, it was just, I ruined my family with the deal. I mean, uh, but it was, in terms of what happened to me, basically, I was left to rot for eight years. 
The annals of technology are filled with stories about inventors whose epic struggles over their inventions drove them over the edge. Some, like Edwin Armstrong, inventor of FM radio, take their own lives. Others, like Nikola Tesla, the father of alternating current, suffered, like Cobb, from obsessive-compulsive disorder. Tesla required any repeated actions in his life, such as the footsteps he took in a walk, to be divisible by three, and he would keep repeating them until he arrived at the right total. When we met with Cobb, it was apparent that his obsessive compulsions focused entirely on car engines. But beyond that, it seemed to me that some essential part of him, what some people might call a soul, I guess, was indistinguishable from his invention. He is the variable valve mechanism, and it is him. When, after over an hour of conversation, I asked to see the prototype, his sleepy, medicated eyes sparkled to life, and like a kid on Christmas morning, he bounded through the door leading to the garage and showed us the modified Corvair. Okay, now this is in the economy mode, and you can listen. When we go into the performance mode, you will see the idle quality deteriorate. Well, just to simulate that, I'll show you what happens here if I push it all the way up. Out of gas, I'm broke down again. Almost home. Maintenance fees are a capitalist tool for driving small people out of business. And the small guy, in my opinion, is always the guy that gets us five years ahead. I mean, that's what, we're, that's what the patent deal does, is that the sooner we get something birthed into the incubation period, the greater the potential to capitalize on, you know, on the large-scale employment we can derive from it. Mm -hmm. So we need the guys birthing, and we need to keep them alive. Well, how the hell are you going to do that, and how could a state do that and, re and make a... Uh, and get a return on their money. And I think making the payment of maintenance fees and possibly the patent application cost eligible for tax credits, probably another thing I would say on that is I think especially things that have to do with environment and energy, you know, they have a social value as well as not, not just another hula hoop, but things that have a social value also. All right, well, I think we, uh, we need to be getting on. Okay. <laughs> you know, As we drove back to Minneapolis, John and I talked about how it was appropriate somehow that we hadn't met Cobb anywhere but the garage. The garage was where Cobb really lived, even when his body was sleeping somewhere else. He tries to solve the same problem over and over again, how to get control of his patents back. And that's as far as he'll go, because what lies beyond patent battles with some of the world's largest corporations is too remote a possibility even for Cobb to contemplate, and surely too expensive for him to ever afford. His patents expire next year, and hope with them. And hope is the only thing that's kept Cobb's motor running all these years. As the frozen expanse of great white north suburbia flash by, the trailer parks cheek by jowl with the giant malls filled with last minute shoppers. Part of me wished I'd ask Cobb how he was going to spend Christmas. Another part of me couldn't bear to know. 
Living on Earth, I'm Harry Goldstein. Harry Goldstein is a reporter for Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum Magazine. To see photos of Corliss Orville Burant, a.k.a. Cobb, and his invention, visit our website, livingonearth.org. Coming up on Living on Earth, the days have grown short, the nights dark and cold. It's time to gather by the fireside for our annual holiday storytelling special. At this time of year, we celebrate light, because in many parts of the world, there isn't very much of it. The winter in Norway is dark, and I'm so lucky to live in a place in Norway where there is a few hours of light in daytime. But up north in Norway, it's dark, daytime, nighttime. Heidi Dalsveen tells stories, stories that shine with hope, even on the darkest of days. But beware what might be lurking in the depths of a Norwegian winter night. It was Christmas Eve. It was cold, but it was a dark, dark time. He could hear the sound of the small waves. He felt a strong, salty smell. He walked on the pier towards the boat. He jumped into the boat, filled the keg, even took a soup himself, and the strong liquid warmed him even out to his fingertips. And he had just stepped out of the boat when he heard a sound. And he slowly looked up. And when he saw what he saw, he was petrified. He looked straight at the sailors and the fishermen's greatest fear, death itself. Draugen was standing in front of him and blocking his way. Draugen, once he was a brave fisherman or a sailor, too brave and headstrong with no respect for the ocean, he tried to conquer the ocean and was himself conquered by it. And because he had been so headstrong and headless, he was now missing the head. Instead of the head, it was tea tangle and seaweed on top of his shoulders. And the young man, he ran as fast as he could. He heard him coming closer and closer, and soon he reached the churchyard. But in that moment, he heard the bell going doing, doing, doing 12 times in the middle of the most dark night of Norway. And he thought, I wonder if I will survive this darkness. Join us for the Living on Earth holiday special, Season of Light. We'll celebrate with tales of light and darkness from around the world. And we promise they won't all be scary. We leave you this week, halfway around the world, to catch up, once again, with the humble pigeon. By northern India's Lake Pichola, rock doves roost on a windowsill at water's edge. Women wash laundry nearby, striking clothes against the stone embankments as calls to prayer echo in the distance. Living on Earth's Dennis Foley captured the scene by the water in the city of Udaipur.
Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Tobin Hack, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Ian Gray and Jennifer Percy. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.